Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. They came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And Brother Greg, before service, he was telling me that he had great insight here that uh, the Lord was the first one to have automatic doors. You know how we have automatic doors and we go into different places? The Bible, the Bible beat us to it, right? Verse 10, which opened to them of its own accord, and they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. Verse number 11, and when Peter was come to himself... He said, Now I know of a surety, now I know for certain, that the Lord hath sent his angel, and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod, and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And this is the people that are praying from verse number 5. They're having a prayer meeting at John Mark's mother's house. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken. A young girl came to the door named Rhoda. Verse 14, And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then they said, Well, it's, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. When they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, be quiet, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go, show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. Now I wanted to read the whole thing, not just for time, but just so you could have the context in mind of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Tonight we'll be talking about when the church prays. When the church prays. If you look at verse 5, it says, Prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God. Okay. Now the Bible repeatedly reveals the power and possibilities that are available through prayer. Now, what is prayer? Prayer is simply communication with God. It is talking directly to God. And from the beginning of human history, as we have recorded for us in the Scriptures, we know that when people pray, stuff happens, right? The Bible talks about God intervening, God changing His mind, God performing certain miracles, God delivering, God doing wondrous things that are hard for our minds to even comprehend. Now in the Bible we see individuals that pray. In Mark chapter 1, the story is told of Jesus, an individual that rises before the day and he goes to a solitary place. And what does he do? He prays. Uh, you guys have been going through Daniel and in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in response to uh, the decree of Darius that, uh, you know, the outlawed petitions being asked of God, Daniel went to his house, knelt before an open window, and he gave thanks to God three times a day. He was an individual praying. 
So in Bible, we see individuals that pray. Okay, we know, we know that to be the case. But there is something especially powerful when a group of God's people pray together. Or if we could put it in more New Testament terms, when the church prays. Amen? We see the church praying on a number of occasions as we, we, we turn to the New Testament. If we just go right through the book of Acts. The earliest disciples in Acts chapter 1, they gathered, into the, they gathered in an upper room and they were waiting earnestly for the promise of the Father that Jesus had talked about right before uh, His ascension. And I want to say this, Miranda, you make the best jelly or jam ever. Whatever that was, that was great. Sorry, I had to say that. You guys need to go buy some from her. The vanilla cinnamon, whatever it is, fantastic. Okay, they're gathered in the upper room. What did they do? They prayed. Acts 1.14 says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Now when they pray, it's not like nothing happens. Something happens, the Bible tells us. In Acts chapter 2, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. So in Acts 1, we see a group of people praying. In Acts chapter 4, if we go a little further, we see another group of Christians praying. James and John, they're getting troubled by the religious leaders in Acts chapter 4 for preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And when the church heard about the threats of the chief priests and elders, what do they do? They get together and they lift up their voice to God with one accord. In other words, they prayed. And what was the result of that group of people praying? The Bible tells us in, in, in Acts chapter 4, verse number 31, when they had prayed, the place was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. With that idea in mind, with, with a group of people praying, we turn to Acts chapter 12 and we see the exact same thing happen in Acts chapter 12. When the church prays, okay, not just when individuals pray, although that's great, when the church prays together, stuff happens. If you remember one statement from, from the sermon, remember this, and, I, and I'm proud of this because it rhymes, it pays when the church prays, okay? It pays when the church prays. Let's look first tonight at the cause of the church's praying. Why is the church praying here in Acts chapter 12? Well, we read it at the, at the beginning of Acts chapter 12. Luke tells us that Herod had stretched forth his hands and he had, he, he, he had taken uh, James. The, this is Herod, King Herod Agrippa I. And he's using his wicked hands to perform evil against God's people, okay? And what it seems like Herod's strategy is, it's not necessarily to attack the church at large, but it's to attack certain key individuals that are there in the church. So we, he goes after James. And this is James, the brother of John. This is not James, the brother of Jesus, who is later converted um, who wasn't a believer during Jesus' lifetime. This is James, one of the original twelve. And the Bible tells us, verse number two, that he killed James with the sword. Okay, that's another way of saying he was beheaded. Now, the Jewish leadership at that time was a sick, perverted group of people. Okay, and instead of being shocked at this behavior, 
Okay, instead of being like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that you would stoop to such depths that you would kill a man because of what he believes and teaches. No, that they applauded it. They were excited about what had happened to James, right? They were, they were pleased with it, the Bible says. And so Herod, being the politician that he is, wants to keep that applause going, right? And so what does he do? He's like, well, if, it, if they were pr- proud of me for killing James, they're probably going to be proud of me if I do the same thing to Peter. And so they take Peter, he, you know, he gets him arrested, he has him guarded by 16 men, as, he sa- as we said, and he was going to make a big spectacle of Peter. He was going to bring him forth before the people, and he was going to do the same thing to Peter as what had happened to James, Okay. But the difference is this, there was a delay, okay? Peter was arrested during a specific time. It was during the festival of unleavened bread. And so Herod, even though he was mean, doesn't mean he was necessarily stupid, right? And so he didn't want to mess up a whole festival by killing a man in front of all the people. And so he was going to wait to the end of that festival, and then he was going to put Peter to death. Okay, so the festival, this feast, normally lasted a week, okay, and so we don't know when Peter was um, apprehended and put in prison, but it was sometime during that week, and he was going to be killed toward the end of it in the same fashion that James was. So this is the context behind the churches praying for Peter. The church isn't like, all right, let's, we're going to randomly go around and pray for different people at the church. All right, tonight's time we're praying for Peter. Tomorrow night we're going to pray for, um, you know, Brother Gary Smith. We're going to pray for him. No, it's not random. They're praying for Peter because of this situation that has happened, that he's in prison. Can you, can you put yourself in Peter's position tonight? Anxious? You know, you're in a prison. This is a festival taking place. You hear a bunch of people outside that are happy, having a good time. He's probably... Certainly anxious, right? You're about to die. Even Christians, you know, face anxiety. Um, He's awaiting the end, what is probably going to be the end of his earthly existence with the sword. Now, many people in here tonight, probably most of us, will never be physically persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ, unless things, you know, continue changing drastically. But... Physical prison isn't the only kind of prison that Christians can find themselves in, okay? And the other types of prisons that Christians find themselves in, as I'll mention a few in just a second, they're just as real, they're just as harmful, they're just as serious as the prison that Peter found himself in, okay? What's an example of a type of prison? Well, some people find themselves in a prison of bitterness, okay? Uh, we may become bitter at God. We bec- we're doubting his, his sovereignty. We're questioning why did he allow certain things to happen? That might be why bitterness happens to some people. God, why did you let this happen? Why did you let my relative die tragically in the car accident? Why did you not heal my mom of cancer. Lord, I know you healed other people's mom of cancer. Why didn't you heal my mom of cancer? Why, why did you elevate that person into a higher position of ministry? 
but not, but not me. God, why did you let my children depart from the faith? Okay? These are serious questions. And these types of questions, if we do not take them to the Lord, and the Lord wants us to ask of Him and to seek Him, right? He doesn't want us just to let them fester. But if we don't take them to the Lord, if we let these types of questions just fester and grow and eat at us, very soon we're going to find ourselves in a prison of bitterness where we doubt God's goodness and God's faithfulness. Some could find themselves in a prison, not of bitterness, but of fear. Okay, we, we, we probably saw this with some people during, during COVID, you know, very serious thing, um, no, absolutely no doubt. But, but out of that, some people could have, could have developed a certain fear, just a, just a, just a fear of, of, of things. And, and, it's, and it's right natural to have a good level of fear, like you don't want to be idiotic, right, and stupid. But, but we're not supposed to be driven by fear and gripped by fear and in a prison of fear. We could, have, we could fear that, well, my parents' marriage fell apart, so it's probably likely that my marriage is going to fall apart. We could fear, well, the economy doesn't seem like it's doing too good, so guess what? He lost his job. I might wind up losing my job, right? And it's not based in rationality or logic, but it's just, it, it gets us. Okay? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Some people can be trapped in a prison not of bitterness or fear, but some people are trapped in a, in a prison of disappointment. Okay, Things just, Your life hasn't worked out like you wanted it to, and you're just disappointed. Some people are gripped by a prison of past sins, past failures, that you failed God, and you've repented over it, and you turned from it, but it still haunts you. Okay, It still eats at you, that you're in this prison of guilt over past sins that even you've repented of. So tonight, are you in a prison? Okay, let me ask you that. Are you in a prison tonight? Not physical prison, obviously, because you're in, in here. But are you in an invisible prison that nobody can physically see, but it's just as real as the prison that Peter found himself in? Now, one thing I want to mention before we move on is, is this simple fact, but it's, I, think it's, I think it's so true and so powerful is that everybody knew that Peter was in prison, right? It wasn't a hidden fact that Peter was in prison and nobody knew about it. They obviously knew about it because they're praying for him. So everybody knew that Peter was in prison, but how many people know that you're in a prison? Okay? One of the problems today is that People really just don't know what we're going through. And I'm not saying you got to blast everything, you know, and tell everybody everything that's going on in your life. But we're pretty good at masking our problems, you know. Coming to church, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. Moving along. But we have problems that we're harboring uh, prisons inside. Uh, and, and because other people don't know about what we're facing. And I'm not saying you got to tell everybody and, and their neighbor. And, you know, some people will go the other end of the spectrum. But if you really want to receive the benefits that come from the church praying for you, other people need to know what's going on in your life, right? So that's, that's a call to, to, to make sure we, other people know what's going on in our lives. And I don't know how that's going to work out individually for you, but let's make sure people know what's going on in our lives. 
The cause of the church is praying. Why is the church praying? The church is praying because Peter is about to be executed. Secondly, let's look at the components of the church is praying. We know that the church was praying for Peter, but what did their praying look like? What, what did their prayer look like? I see three things from verse number five that we can, we can look to, to to talk about their praying. Number one, their praying was corporate. Okay? Notice what it says in verse number five. Prayer was made without ceasing of the church. Okay, this is a group of people that are praying together. This isn't isolated individuals praying secretly in their prayer closets. This was the church coming together and praying for a need. If you read in verse number 12, the Bible gives us more detail about this prayer meeting. It says that people were at John Mark's house, John Mark's mother's house, where many were gathered together praying. It wasn't isolated people praying in the confines of, of their home. It was people that came together and they were praying together for a specific need. So the church's praying first was what? It was corporate. And I think that we need to recover this element of praying in the American church world. We should all aim to pray privately, right? We should all pray to, to pray individually. Jesus taught us this. When you pray, you need to go into your prayer closet, shut the door. Jesus exemplified this. He didn't just teach, but he did what he taught, right? But we also, there needs to be times when we come together and we pray together as the people of God. I, uh, I've read it, a, I read it a couple of times, but it's a powerful book. Jim Cimbala's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. I encourage you, if you haven't read that, to, to read it. But he tells the story and there of a, a man from New Zealand who came to his church. And he, he spoke very briefly, didn't preach, but he just gave this statement at the end of one of his services. And this is what he said. He said, you can tell how popular a church is by who comes on Sunday. You can tell how popular the pastor is by who comes on Sunday night. But you can tell how popular Jesus is by who comes to the prayer meeting. I was like, wow, that's powerful, right? Do we believe in the power of corporate prayer? And I, I, love, I love that Broadway has time set apart. And again, I know that our schedules are different than they were 30 years ago. Okay, We live in a different culture, different country. People are busier. And so I'm not casting stones at anybody please don't please don't take that I'm thankful that Broadway has time set apart and if you don't know the women's prayer is 6 30 on on Thursday nights and men's prayer is 8 a.m. on Saturday morning and honestly like that's one of my favorite times of the day of the week because as a person that has newborns it's hard to find time when you can just talk to God quietly without Daddy, daddy, and you know, look at this what I just built. Okay? Finding time to pray. And not just praying, you know, by myself, but praying and hearing other 
men pray is a powerful thing. And I'm going to encourage you to that. Let's recover that. Let's make that a vital part of our Christian experience, that we be a people that prays together. Not just at these times of prayer meeting, but even at the church. You know, I, I'm grateful to be here in a Pentecostal church where we have altar calls and times of prayer. Let's not take that for granted. Let's take advantage of that and pray together for, for, for different individuals that are going through things. So the, the, the church's praying was corporate, but secondly, it was committed prayer. If you look in verse 5, it says, Prayer was made without ceasing. Prayer was made without ceasing. Now this word, this expression, doesn't just mean that they just kept praying and praying and praying like, and, and not focusing at all whatsoever. Like, you know, people can pray without ceasing, but it not have like any emotion or any, any heart in it. This is intense prayer. This isn't just, you know, sleepy prayer. This is intense, fervent, committed prayer. It's the same type of praying that Jesus prayed in Luke 22, where he said in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were, Great drops of blood. That's the type of praying that, that is in mind here in Acts chapter 12. Fervent, committed praying. Prayer without ceasing. And as we pray for those who are in prisons, as we find out about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through different trials, not necessarily physical but, but invisible trials, we should remember this fact, that Peter, the Bible says, was kept in prison until the end of this festival that I talked about. Do you remember how long I said it lasted? It lasted a week, okay, seven days. And again, we don't know when Peter was, was taken, but he was taken at some point, and this church was praying not by the minutes, not by the hours, but the, the, this church was praying by the days. We can measure this church's praying in, in days. And, and, and I have to admit, I've never prayed for days on end. And that's, you know, a challenge, a challenge to us that we need to make sure we be people of prayer. Paul said in the First Thessalonians, we should pray, how? Without ceasing. They prayed corporately. They also prayed committedly. They prayed without ceasing. But then I want you to notice, thirdly, in verse number 5, the Bible says, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Their praying was concentrated. Okay? It wasn't just a generic type praying, general praying for all people. Their praying was concentrated on a specific person in a specific situation. Now this, this is kind of my interpretation, so I could be wrong about this. So I'll try to explain, explain it as best I can here about this story right here. We know the ending of the story, okay, what happens. We read it tonight about this great escape that takes place. And sometimes we automatically assume that that's what the church was praying for, okay? So there was a great escape, there was a great deliverance, that's what the church was praying for, and God answer, answered that prayer, but I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think the church's praying was probably more broadly than them just praying for a deliverance. And, and the reason is this. I'm not just saying that uh, just to say that. I think there's a reason. When Peter escapes from prison, where does he go? Do you remember? John Mark, mother's house. He's knocking on the door, right? 
a little young lady comes to the door named Rhoda. She answers the door. She hears that it's Peter's voice. She knows it's him. She runs back into the house. She tells them, and then the people just come rushing out, and they say, the Lord heard our prayer. Is that how it happens? No. And I don't know how we, how we should interpret this exactly. Like, there's different ways. And I, I was talking to some guys, like, how, you know, how, well, how do you interpret this? And there's different ways. Could it be that they were praying for something they didn't really believe would happen? And so they were so shocked that it happened. They deny. They say, Rhoda, you're mad. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. This can't be Peter. And then finally, she just keeps telling him and telling him and telling him, verse 15. And so then they come up with a, a, a rational explanation. Oh, well, it's not Peter, but it's his angel. So they deny it two times. So here's a possible understanding, and hopefully it makes sense, is that the early church had been praying somewhat along the lines of Jesus' prayer in Luke 22, where he said, "Um, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Could that have been how the church was praying? Okay, Not just for deliverance, but they were praying that God would strengthen Peter. They were expecting an execution. And they were praying that God would strengthen him. You see, sometimes God allows Herod to kill a James. While soon after, he intervenes to prevent him from killing Peter. And what is the question that we ask when that happens? Why? Was God more loving to Peter than to James? Okay. Well, of course course not. Did the church really get a hold of God for Peter? You know. But they failed to touch God, you know, get in touch in God for James. I don't think that's the answer. If we type, try to ask these types of questions, we can drive ourselves you know, insane, and ultimately we must rest in the goodness of God. But could this also be an example of that great principle in Scripture given to us in Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul says that God is able to do, I know you know this, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Could it be that this is an example of that? This is an illustration of that, that the church isn't really asking for God to deliver Peter from prison because they're expecting him to die based upon the the reaction. And God says, you know what? This time, I'm going to do something far beyond what you even asked or thought. Friend, whatever the explanation is, it pays when the church prays. Now tonight, whatever your prison is, I can't promise you that God's always going to free you from the prison that you're in. And instantly. James was beheaded. Okay? The church prayed for him. Don't you think so? Do you think, or do you think the church is like, no, nah, we're not going to pray for him. We, like, we want to pray for Peter. No, they prayed for him. And he was beheaded. Good Christians die of cancer. Faithful saints battle depression. Godly believers' children depart from the faith. Okay, These are the realities uh, of life. 
But in the midst of all of these types of prisons that, that we might find ourselves in, you might find yourselves in, I can promise you that in the midst of it, God will be good. And God will be loving. And God will be faithful. And we must trust in Him. Not give up praying, because sometimes the answer doesn't come immediately. As we're going to talk about in just a second, we're almost done. We're talking about just a second. Sometimes the answer doesn't come immediately. Sometimes it takes a while for, for, for deliverance from the prison to happen. Amen? But let's keep praying and trusting in God. So how should we pray? As a church, we should pray corporately. Let's pray together as a, as a people. We should pray committedly without ceasing, fervently, persevering in prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we should pray concentratedly. Okay, Not just, Lord, help our congregation today. No, Lord, I pray for, 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 for Brother Treadway. I pray for Brother Dale. I pray for all name people, name situations. And that's what I'm trying to say. Let's pray with concentration for our congregation. Okay, we've talked about the cause of, of their praying. Why was the church praying? We looked at their type of praying. But what happened? Let's look at the consequence of the church's praying. What could happen? If a group of God's people gets together and they pray for a problem, they pray for a situation, it could result in God's supernatural intervention. Because that's what happens here in our story. God supernaturally intervenes and delivers Peter, right? Delivers Peter from his execution that's soon to take place. I want to point out three observations for, from this deliverance for us tonight, and then we'll bring it to a close. The first thing is this, and I, and I hinted at this just a moment ago, the deliverance from your prison might happen at the last second. Notice verse number six, if, if you're on your sheet or in the, in the Bible, it says, and when Herod would have brought him forth the same night. The night before Herod was going to bring Peter out to put him on trial so that he would be executed, that's when God decided to show up. Friend, he might delay deliverance to teach us some important lessons. What's some important lessons that God could teach us? Well, the power of persevering in prayer. Not just, you know, that God always answers immediately, but we persevere in prayer, right? But we shouldn't interpret the delays. I want to tell you this tonight. We should not interpret the delays as proof that God isn't going to deliver. It could all, friend, be just a part of His wise plan. Why is God allowing this to happen? Friend, keep trusting, keep praying. You don't know the future. I don't know the future. But we know that we rest in the hands of God. Peter's deliverance, it might happen at the last second. Number two, when this deliverance happens, if the deliverance happens, number two, it will boggle the mind, right? It will boggle the mind. If you look down at verse number 16, the Bible says eventually the church believes Rhoda, and so they go and they check the situation out. They try to verify the claim, and this is what the Bible says in verse number 16. When they had opened the door and saw him, okay, this man that they're expecting to die soon. This the situation that's about to get a lot worse. Okay, it, it's it's down to the very last seconds, the very last night before something can happen. The Bible says when they saw him, when they saw Peter right before their eyes, they were 
astonished, right? They were amazed. They were probably a little fearful, right? They were probably a little overwhelmed about what had just occurred in their midst. And friend, let me tell you, it's the same thing when God delivers us from our prisons. If you're delivered from a prison of physical affliction, a prison of bitterness and fear as we talked about, a prison of of addiction, whatever the prison might be that you're in tonight, when it happens, it's going to boggle the mind. Which leads to the third thing. When this happens, who's going to get all the credit? God, the Lord. Now, initially, the Bible says, we already mentioned this, Peter thought it was a vision. He thought it was like a dream. He didn't think it was happening in reality. But eventually, he comes to himself, he comes to his senses, and he realizes that he is actually being delivered, right? He is, this is actually happening. And notice what he says in verse number 11. He says, now I know of a certainty. Now I know for certain. Now I know for sure. Notice what he says. That the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me. Not, you know, somebody else. God is the one that got all the credit. Go down to verse number 17 if if you have the Bible out. When they get... To, to, to the house, and he comes into the door, and he, and he, and he tells them to, you know, be quiet, because I don't want to go back in prison just quite yet, just in case they're looking for me. He says that Peter declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Friend, the church didn't get the credit, right? Peter didn't say, you know, although praying is a factor here, the, Peter didn't say, all right, church, You guys are so super spiritual and righteous. It was because of you guys that I got out of prison. Or it wasn't because of Peter and his special righteousness. And, and, you know, him, I'm a foundational pillar of the church. And God delivered me, you know. So, so, So he didn't get the credit, right? It was the Lord that got all the credit. And friend, let me tell you, when God moves supernaturally in our lives... He will get all the glory and all the credit. And He likes it that way. Okay, And sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder if God doesn't move more miraculously in our situations because He knows if He did, He wouldn't get all the glory. Okay, He knows that if He healed the person we're praying for and the situation we're praying for, then we would have a tendency of looking at ourselves and be like, oh, you know, Grant, he prayed for, for, for that person and he was healed. Maybe God doesn't heal sometimes because of that. I don't know. But what I know is that at the end of the day, when God delivers, when God delivers because of the church's praying, he needs to get all the glory and all the honor. Katrina, if you would come to the piano. One lesson I think we can get from this tonight is we all need each other, right? We, don't, we can't do this by ourselves. We need other people. We need a church that prays together, right? Paul in Galatians chapter 5, he uses this analogy of people that are biting and devouring one another. He apparently had my son Lincoln in mind. Just kidding. <laughs> Please pray for us that God would give us success. Uh, 
Okay? God, God's will for, for every church is not for people to be biting one another, devouring one another, but to be praying for one another, right? I was um, reading this morning, I'm uh, reading a biography of Frederick Douglass, and um, powerful, powerful story, a, a man that was born into slavery in America, and then he escaped to freedom, and he used words. He, he wrote a lot. He, had, he wrote in a newspaper that um, called The Liberator, and then he created his own newspaper. But some of his previous captors kind of were, I think, refuting what he was saying and saying that, well, Frederick Douglass, who his name was actually Frederick Bailey, but he changed his name. Frederick Douglass, he's kind of making up that story. He wasn't, it's not really as bad as, as what he says. I read this this morning. This is what he said. It's fascinating, I thought. It's powerful. He said, say not, he wrote a, a personal letter, kind of a public letter in a newspaper that his captor could read. And he said, say not that this is a picture of fancy. Don't, in other words, don't say that this is just made up in my imagination. He said, you well know, talking to his, his previous owner, you well know that I wear stripes on my back inflicted by your direction. And that you, while we were brothers in the same church, caused this right hand with which I am now penning this letter to be closely tied to my left and my person dragged at the pistol's mouth 15 miles to be sold like a beast in the market. See, one of the things Douglas attacked so much was the religious hypocrisy of people who said that would cry at church on Sunday, said they love God, but then would treat people like property. And while, you know, we might not obviously be this, you know, bad. I'm not going to be walking up to somebody with a pistol and say, all right, you know, do, do, do what I want, whatever. But I need you, right? I, I need you, okay? And I'm not saying this because, like, you know, I don't, I don't know, but, like, even if you don't like me as the person or Katrina or whatever, we need your prayers and you need my prayers, right? I'm a husband in a culture that hates marriage. I'm a father of sons in a culture that hates masculinity. I'm a father of a daughter in a culture that promotes falsehoods about what beauty is. I can't do this on my own. And we and you can't either, right? We need each other to pray. So as we as we conclude this tonight, that's what I want to leave you with. Let's be a church that prays together. Amen. Let's be a church that prays that while we are brothers and sisters at this church, let's pray for one another. And let me tell you if we do that, if we pray for each other, God's going to do some miraculous things. Amen. God's going to do some powerful, mighty things because, as I said at the beginning, it pays when the church prays. Do you believe that? Amen. I don't know how you guys normally do it Wednesday night, but I think they said you guys may find a place to pray like we usually do. And so I want to invite you to the altar. And let's make that commitment that, Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen.
And I want to do your will in this hour. And so you guys have a good rest of the week in the Lord. And uh, we'll see you on Sunday, Lord willing. But let's come talk to the Lord for a minute. And uh, let's ask him to let's be a church that prays together. Amen.